You are listening to the Antler VC Cast. We are your hosts. I am Yusti Salavara and I'm the co-founder and managing partner of Antler. I am Pooja Barwani, the marketing director of Antler. In this series, we feature stories of exceptional people who are playing a key role in building and shaping the next wave of tech and the way it is integrated into all we do. We take a look at the transformation that is taking place in an increasingly global and digital world. We will talk about innovation, building and scaling startups, mistakes they made, pivots they navigated through and lots more. We want to know their story, how they did it, the challenges they faced and how they overcame them. Stay tuned. Today we have with us Rajiv Shrivatsa, co-founder of Urban Ladder, an online furniture company that raised over $100 million in venture capital from Indian and international investors such as Ratan Tata and Sequoia Capital. Prior to starting Urban Ladder in 2012, Rajiv spent over a decade working with a number of multinational corporations, including Infosys, Cognizant and Yahoo. Currently, Rajiv is the country head and a partner in India for Antler. Welcome to the show, Rajiv. Thanks, Pooja, for having me. Let's start by talking a bit about your journey as an entrepreneur for the listeners. You have done so much these past few years, and now you're with Antler. So let's take it from the beginning about your story and how it all started, this whole journey with Urban Ladder. So for us, uh, you know, Ashish and me go back a long way. We know each other from uh, our B-school days. Uh, This was in 2004. And uh, 2008, uh, coincidentally, both of us moved to Bangalore around the same time. This was 12 years back. And uh, we used to, uh, you know, keep meeting literally every other weekend uh, when, you know, just for dinner and stuff. And that was the time when the Indian startup ecosystem was just about taking off. And uh, we used to talk about, you know, uh, some idea or the other. And uh, uh, Ashish literally, you know, uh, he was uh, obviously thinking of doing something, but uh, he had to uh, sit on my head probably for a year, right? Because I had a lot of inertia being with Yahoo and uh uh, also, just uh, coming from a very salaried background, uh, it took him, I think, a year or more to actually convince me to actually uh, start off. And uh, for us, the original idea, this was around 2011 September, right? Uh, uh, we were just going, uh, you know, for a drive for dinner and we just said, okay, hey, let's do something. Funnily enough, in the online grocery space, right? Uh, we said, hey, let's uh, do something in the grocery space. And uh, we said, yeah, okay, let's do, right? And I was, I think, in Yahoo and I had spent around three, four years on the technology side and Ashish was running operations for Amachitra Kata and somewhere we were, I would say, towards the fag end of those journeys. Uh, but we were not very clear as to what the next journey would be. And uh, sometimes what happens in corporates is uh, you also, you know, uh, the amount of time made in presentations uh, crosses the amount of time you should be building products. Uh, so that I think somewhere got to me. And uh, similarly, he was in a phase of transition and one thing led to the other. Over the course of the next three months, I think while we started with online and grocery as the idea, we, uh, I think, eliminated it very soon within a month, month and a half. Because for us, I think while grocery had a massive market and this was pre-Big Basket and pre-Zop now and the rest of them, um, really, I don't think we felt passionate passionate enough about doing something in the grocery space as individuals, right? Because our background was more product. Uh, and uh, while obviously you need a lot of uh, product work on grocery also, we just felt, hey, let's do something which was far more around creating a category at some level, right? And uh, where the need was strong. And then from grocery, then we went to gourmet food. Uh, from gourmet food, we went to a bunch of other ideas based on our backgrounds. 
So how and when exactly did you decide on the home category? Uh, but finally, I think by December of 2011, we landed on saying, hey, maybe home as a sector is one where the market is massive. We have personally had a bunch of needs of our own self. And uh, when we were trying to set up homes in Bangalore, this was 2010 uh, and 2011, respectively, we had faced a lot of problems. And Ashish specifically, he had uh, gone through a bunch of challenges setting up his house and uh, uh, he had actually had to import a sofa from London, right? And he had gone through that, you know, uh, journey even stronger in terms of not finding good quality furniture. So we said, okay, let's maybe evaluate home as a space. Mm-hmm. Then one thing led to the other over the course of the next two, three months, even within the home sector, we sort of prioritized as uh, furniture as the space that had the most massive need, right? It was also a very tough problem to crack. So for us, I think what excited us was, hey, it is a massive market. It is a need that we have ourselves felt and seems like a lot of our own friends have also had that need. We talked to a lot of people. And last but not the least, we seem to be passionate enough in creating something new, right? Because uh, even worldwide, there was no one who had sold furniture online. And uh, for us, some level of excitement was also in solving a problem that had not been solved before, right? So that was a risk of solving a problem that had not been solved before. But I think that sort of also excited us. And over the course of the next six months, the first six months of uh, 2012, uh, you know, we sort of uh, uh, resigned from our jobs and uh, then set up the whole thing. And uh, that's how it started, right? And uh, we decided the name actually December 28, 29th uh, of 2011, uh, around uh, eight and a half years back. And, uh, you know, we literally picked the name uh, Urban Ladder because I think both of us liked Urban and Ladder individually. And we were okay. going all over the place in terms of the names. But we were, I think, somewhere motivated by a dual name. Uh, the Harley Davidsons and uh, also uh, in the US, <laughs> a lot of Pottery Barn and Crate and Battle. So we were mm. sort of uh, very uh, inspired by the dual names uh, and also something more abstract than explicit, right? Which is uh, not like, you know, uh, bed uh, bed and bar. Then, you know, we, were not really, yeah. Yeah, we were not really uh, too excited by the literal names. So yeah. we said, okay, let's do something which is a bit more abstract. Uh, and also funnily enough, the first uh, idea around uh, gro- grocery and gourmet. The name of the company that we had set was Corn Ladder. Don't ask me today why. Uh, I don't it's think that long. would have been a good name. <laughs> <laughs> it was not Corn. It was Corn. C O R N Ladder. But uh, still, I don't think it would have been a good name. But uh, so yeah. I think that word Ladder sort of stuck from Corn Ladder. Yeah. And uh, the word Urban somewhere got added. And uh, yeah, so uh, that's sort of a very short story on the background to the name and the company. Very interesting. Uh, I mean, a brave move. Um, very curious. How did like how did your early investors? Uh, how did you get them on board? Like, if you think about the very first like capital you raised, like when did you actually get it? Did you start by bootstrapping and and you know how did you get um, investors' passion? Because like you said, this problem hadn't been solved before, and especially in like. Um, emerging markets or let's say new startup ecosystem like you said india was back then um getting investors to back you know problems that haven't been solved before in other more mature markets uh, must be difficult right so how how did that part of the journey go yeah i think we were pretty uh i would say fortunate to get on board at that time a one million round used to be called series a so well and you know the number of venture capitalists and the amount of money in the ecosystem was far lesser this was 2012 
uh, April. So, uh, Vani Kola uh, from Kaladi, uh, who became our first investor. So, we didn't put too much money, honestly. Uh, we uh, got, uh, we were lucky to get money even before we started. And uh, we got money in April 2012. While we started in uh, July 2012, we announced the money later after we started. Uh, the uh, I think somewhere they you know they were a very prolific uh, series A investor at that stage, and uh, and even to this day they are. And uh, I think Vani saw in the space a massive opportunity because she herself was a big home connoisseur. Uh, she has some of the you know most exquisite furniture, and she saw a clear gap in the space. She is also an early investor in Snapdeal and Mintra and a bunch of e-commerce. So she also felt that home as a space would be probably the next one that can uh, be open to disruption because Mintra at that time was just disrupting apparel and uh, home was still early. Uh, and somewhere, I guess, as entrepreneurs, she saw a good mix of uh, very strong operational background that Ashish was bringing in from his Amashitra uh, uh days and uh, on the technology and the brand side that I was bringing in. And at that stage, you know, and even probably in the first two stages as investors, probably you have all about either the market and the category that you are excited and whether this is the right team to go after that problem. So I, you know, it's tough to talk on their behalf, but that's sort of at least what I felt uh, was the story for Kaladi to come in uh, as an investor. And uh, yeah, we were sort of fortunate to raise that 1 million round. And over the course of the next, I would say, uh, one and a half, two years, we raised another 5 million, right? Uh, so very capital efficient, specifically in the first two years before the uh, crazy uh, uh, capital hit the Indian entrepreneurial ecosystem in 2014. Uh, but really built it ground up, you know, very strong unit economics, very uh, completely online. And we sort of created a category even at that time, even world over, uh, not just in India and emerging markets, uh, even world over. Uh, there were very few uh, companies that had created online furniture brands direct to consumer, right? And also the thing that we realized, the more we got into it, uh, while our initial hypothesis was that we will actually build something on the technology front and uh, really get in suppliers and companies to give us the furniture. We also realized very early on that we have to get into the design of the furniture. We have to get into delivery and installation. We started again, you know, uh, working with third-party companies in a month and a half. We figured that was not going to happen. So over the course of the first few months, we figured that it was going to be a massive set of challenges that we want to, we have to work on to get this right. And uh, yeah, that's sort of at least on the starting phase. And I think, Thankfully, at that time, the ecosystem was also pretty nascent. So they were pe- looking for people, who, even though they could be first-time entrepreneurs, people who could show passion and show a particular skill. I think, I mean, our backgrounds and our pedigrees helped, of course, our work experiences and our college degrees and stuff. And I think that has some kind of a value to say that, hey, you're probably you know done well in your academic institution. But I guess, I don't know how much of a, a big thing it is even today. But I, I guess there is some biases towards having strong college degrees also. So I think we were just lucky that way, right? We had, you know, uh, we had an education from uh, an Indian Institute of Management and Indian Institute of Technology, both of us, uh, strong work experiences. So all of that, I think, in hindsight, went in our favor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very interesting. Uh, I feel like these days there starts to be almost like this, uh, like uh, trend that corporate is like a curse word in the startup world. Someone just, uh, someone was just telling me like, Last week, that we had a bunch of corporate dinosaurs in our program, <laughs> and so sort of a weird viewpoint. That typically, people start somewhere, and uh, you know, I guess uh, 
you're a good example of that. That I don't think you feel like you're a corporate dinosaur even when you started, right? I mean, uh, uh, any thoughts on that? And any advice to people who are in corporates thinking of you know embarking on that journey? So, funnily enough, in the last I would say four five years, I've interacted with so many people from startups as well as corporates. Uh, my hypothesis there is I think there's a lot of talent, there's a lot of passion, and a lot of ambition in people in corporates as well as startups. Of course, the more time you spend in corporates, maybe you know you get uh, more time wasted in processes and bureaucracy and stuff, and that happens to everyone. Like the presentations you just mentioned, I mean, that's a good example yeah. of something that uh, maybe doesn't translate. Yeah. That well. <laughs> I I would say I think there is maybe you know if you're maybe I would say less than two three stints in corporates. Uh, and you've sort of made multiple corporate stints, you uh, you still have the energy and the passion because at the end of the day, an entrepreneurship uh, you know journey is going to be uh, fraught with a lot of challenges. And it's not like corporates. You know, there are corporates which are growing pretty fast and you have to do pretty well to do well even in a corporate, right? So there are certain skill sets that are going to be important. So I am not... Personally, I wouldn't be biased just because you work in a startup that you have a higher chance or vice versa mm-hmm. because I have seen enough ambition, aspiration, drive from people who are young enough and start uh, in uh, bigger companies also as much as people who have worked in startups. I think it's a it's a de facto uh, network and access that you get when you're part of startups, right? You get a lot of people with high energy. You get a lot of people who are st- challenging status quo, uh, smart entrepreneurial people, smart technologists. But at the same time, if you do this well enough, there is absolutely no reason why you can't be uh, in the last six, seven years in a corporate and get to do a great startup. Of course, there are people who have done that also. So, you know, there are early biases that always come in in any early ecosystem. But I think the job of, uh, I'm sure as part of Antler and my new avatar, it will be to break some of these stereotypes and find the hidden gems uh, literally across the ecosystem. So speaking of uh, entrepreneurs and from corporate to startup, um, Rajiv, would you say, you know, uh, entrepreneurs can be made and nurtured depending on the environment they're in? the co-founding team, and basically the mentorship that they get in the ecosystem? I believe so very strongly, right? Not just because personally I've gone through that journey. Uh, I also believe so because, see, at the end of the day, an entrepreneurship journey is about a lot of people coming together, you know, either as co-founders, as early employees, uh, and you wanting to create and solve a big problem, right? So what I don't think can be uh, created is your inherent commitment to solve a particular problem or your inherent creativity and drive, right? Which are things that you would need as uh, skill sets at your core. But, you know, whether that's to run a business or a sales cycle or to recruit or to uh, get people in, uh, those are skills that can be trained. And it's not like when I personally started, I knew all these skills, right? Uh, and even as an entrepreneur, because you're going to be growing so crazily as a, you know, especially if you're see, starting up is one thing, starting up to build a startup is another thing, right? So if you're really going to be building a startup, which is going to be VC funded and scaled, then you're going to be any way changing as a person literally 2x every year because your startup is going to change as a person uh, as an entity 2x every year, right? So uh, I think it's extremely, uh, uh, you know, uh, possible. Also, because that's the only way. If someone says that they know how to build a startup, which is going to go from zero to $100 million on day one, uh, that's a whole load of nonsense because you know it's just not possible unless you have been a first, second time or third time entrepreneur, right? Uh, so you are going to have to change and grow. So uh, you are making yourself in that process. So you're not uh, you know, something that is created from uh, uh, you know above that you've become an entrepreneur. But having said that, I think there's a bunch of very core passion you know, ability to work with people, 
uh, ability to build something and want to create something. I think these are skill sets that uh, are at your core. And if you can, and again, you know, there are times, for example, my, I would say my entrepreneurial passion goes back a long way, right? Because I, in, in my B school, I literally created so many different things, right? So I was very creative that way. Uh, created a bunch of things. Same for Ashish also, my co-founder, right? We created a lot of stuff together in campus. Same in, uh, you know, during my work at Infosys, this was 20 years back, right? I created a bunch of websites inside Infosys. It sort of continued on, right? The thing to create, the thing to solve a problem, you know, went on through Yahoo, created a bunch of properties on education, on uh, celebrities. So I think that whole ability to create, mm-hmm. ability to solve problems at scale for a lot of people, these are inherent attributes uh, added to maybe uh, working with people and maybe some functional skill set. Maybe for you, it's marketing. Maybe for you, it's product. Maybe for someone else, it's manufacturing. It doesn't matter. Some one functional skill set. If you marry this, everything else about entrepreneurship, you anyway have to learn. Yeah, I would say almost like the, the, the most uh, inherent thing, just to add like to what you said, Rajiv, would be the like risk-taking, uh, you know, or like bias towards risk versus aversion, aversion to risk, right? Which for most people would somehow be, you know, born almost like some, you can, you can like go around it by, by generating buffers, but you know, some people are simply, I would say less tolerant to uncertainty in a way. Um, I don't know what you think of that. See, in a country like India, right, where it is still a developing country and uh, people are so used to paychecks because you are in education literally trained to get a paycheck out of college, right? You know, your success is which job you crack on day one, not which company you start, right? That's where the number of entrepreneurs that come out of even the top premier institutes like IIMs and IITs, which I'm also one out of those, is very, very low, right? Just right out of the cuff. But over maybe a decade, there's maybe a 20, 30% that gets into entrepreneurship after going through corporate life, right? I, you know, like my own background, right? Uh, but there is no reason why with time, you can't go strike right that, that emotion very early on. It's going to take time, right? It's going to take a lot of effort. It's going to take a lot of time. But we are taught to be discoverers. We are taught to be uh, at some level, taking care, like you said, the plan B, right? Even I, uh, you know, uh, I mean, I, I think Ashish inherently had a far more of a risk-taking ability, uh, you know, and uh, he needed to work on me personally for quite some time for me to make that jump because I was conservative. I had a bunch of inertia to take that bigger risk. And I had to make sure that maybe I have two years of bank balance, right? So at some level, it is a huge ecosystem play that, uh, even in this avatar that, you know, and that sort of also excites me personally, right? In terms of the whole antler journey itself, and maybe we'll come to that in a bit. But uh, there are a lot of people in a country like India who, for whom risk has not been something that we are trained to be okay with. Failure is not something that we are trained to be okay with, right? Yeah. Uh, you're always taught that it's all about success. It's all about now, thanks to social media, now thanks to so much information out there, thanks to platforms like Antler and more. I think it's okay to fail. It's okay to sort of uh, grow out of your comfort zone, but that's not how we've been trained. So it's going to take decades of this uh, at, you know, at an increasing scale to really get rid of all those risk conversion problems. And a lot of people have it today. Yeah. So we will have to make it easier for them to get out of it. Very yeah, soon. Exactly. Like the cultural acceptance to failure is very critical. Like, you know, if you have shame yeah. associated with failure, it's very difficult to drive certain types of people into into trying 
Yeah. So then, then the car never leaves the parking lot. You know? Yeah. It's not just India. It's a very Southeast Asia face-saving kind of thing that even if you failed, you need to show somehow that you have a backup plan and you're not an absolute failure. Singapore has a very good ecosystem support framework. Can you go into details about the Indian entrepreneur and the way that the tech ecosystem is there? Um, It's grown, as we've all seen. Um, We talked about 2010 when you just started, and there's evolution, there's an evolution that has taken place. So in terms of the journey of the Indian entrepreneur that you have seen, uh, can you talk about how they are now in terms of wanting to take risks and starting their own business? But it's grown, as you've seen as well. We talked about 2010 when you just started. Uh, What sort of evolution uh, has taken place? And in terms of the journey of the Indian entrepreneur that you have seen, are they now a bit more uh, open to taking risks and starting their own businesses? I think two, three things have changed, right? And of course, it's an evolution. Uh, one is there is far more capital. There's far more VCs. There's far more capital. Uh, risk capital, uh, VC capital, PE capital. So one, there's just a lot more access to capital. Two is there is far more mentorship, right? There has been uh, people who have been founders in the last decade who have become second-time founders who are coming into early stage VC, who are becoming mentors, who are becoming angels. So there's a lot more mentorship from people who have been there, done it. Not to say that it's going to be very different probably this decade and the second or the third time. There's nothing short short on entrepreneurship. But at least there's far more, uh, I would say, mentorship and coaching available. Uh, Third is, I would also say, I think there's just a general acceptance far more, you know, at a far bigger level today, right? Compared to a decade back. Uh, you know, there are people who are, uh, there are thousands of people working in startups. That was not the case when we started in 2011-12, right? It, you know, we I remember some of the earliest conversations to try and convince people to join a startup. We used to spend so much time convincing people. Today, mm-hmm. I don't think, while of course, startups themselves have gone through a boom and a bust cycle. So there's always based on the overall macro environment, uh, you know, uh, you know, like a COVID kind of a situation. There are so many people who are sort of laying off and, Shutting down, so there's general risk appetite is probably lesser. But leaving those micro points on the uh, uh, environment, uh, there is far more acceptance to either create a startup or to join a startup, right? I think these are culturally far better, but are we anywhere closer to the Western ecosystem like the Valley and stuff? Certainly not anywhere close, right? So we still have a long way to go. Also on the supports, you know, uh, help, right? Uh, design talent, uh, engineering talent. Uh, all the talent that's required to sort of create a startup or to do it really well, I think that is still in shorter supply. So we need to uh, create far more uh, institutional ability to do that. But overall, I think for an ecosystem which is probably 13, 14 years old at some level, if you exclude some of the 2000 startups, I think we have done pretty well, right? We've gone through those busts and booms and uh, you know we are one of the strongest startup ecosystems across the world. Uh, you know, comp- you know, uh, right after maybe US and China, comparable to let's say Israel and Europe uh, and Southeast Asia as individual ecosystems. So that way, I think there's a lot that's happened in just a decade, uh, but still a long way to go on pretty much all of these fronts to take that to the next level. Sure, that's not true. Okay, and um... specific. Sorry, I think your question also was specific to the entrepreneur themselves, right? So. I would say today there is far more risk appetite to the point that UC was mentioning uh, to be able to do something where it's okay to fail, right? Uh, I think people are coming with that as long as I have the ability to create uh, or I want to solve a problem deep enough, uh, I would 
want to start up. I think I we see a lot more entrepreneurs tying their hand at it. Of course, it is also romantic at some level. You know, that's the other side of it. Uh, you know, to be a startup founder, so uh, it's very difficult at some level to sort of differentiate the people who are doing it for the symbolism or for the uh, romanticism associated with it versus really solving a deep enough problem. But I think with time and with maturity, and now that we have a reasonably strong VC ecosystem, also right with the last decade of uh, smart VCs that have come into the mix. I think it is eminently solvable, uh, you know, put in place frameworks and processes to sort of remove the people who are doing it for the sake of it. Uh, so entrepreneurs themselves, I think they're just far more mature. I mean, I, the last yeah. two, three years, I have not as much interacted with as many entrepreneurs. I'm just doing it in the last few months, especially after the Ancla Avatar. Uh, I think there's just far more intelligence and maturity compared to when we were entrepreneurs at a similar stage eight years back, right? These are younger people. <laughs> these are I'm telling you, these are younger people who are far more mature, who know, uh, you know, at 33, I don't think I knew this. They are at 26 and 27. No, this is not really. Uh, I think they're building things in a far stronger way. But of course, uh, capital does get to everyone. So, you know, there are times when, you know, there's a lot of capital where they can go astray. But uh, uh, I think that's sort of happening. And this is the evolution of every ecosystem. I think by the time, you know, we complete a decade, a decade as antler, let's say, you know, this decade, right? Uh, I'm sure the entrepreneurs in each of our ecosystems are going to be far better and stronger and be building far better companies. And uh, uh, I think that's just the evolution of every ecosystem. And I mean, the value today is maybe, you know, 50, 40, 50 years old from the time, you know, an Apple started. And uh, so they have so much more history and heritage and uh, mentorship and talent. And it's all just so smooth flowing. It's not the case yet in Southeast Asia and India. I think... We don't have to probably wait for 50 years. I would say our entrepreneurs probably in the next, in this decade, we'll probably reach where maybe the value is today, uh, right? In terms of uh, all the surrounding ecosystem, right? It's not just the entrepreneur maturity. I think we are pretty comparable on that front, just on all the surrounding ecosystems. So if we make it de facto, I think that's going to probably take a good part of this decade. Right. So if we take like a bit of a shameless plug, here, you know, what, why is now like, uh, why, why does India need antler and why is now good time to have uh, <laughs> antler uh, enter the country? So for me, see, two, three things, right? One, and these are all serendipitously in hindsight, I can say about this. Uh, no, 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 I don't think this was by all, design. Always planned. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, you know, if, uh, you know, see, the thing is, I uh, obviously moved out officially in October of last year. And, uh, you know, I've been sort of thinking about something early stage for a while, right? Uh, uh, maybe a year, year and a half. Uh, the more I talk to VCs, the more I talk to founders, two, three things became clear. One, I think it is pretty clear that there's a lot of activity that has happened in Series A and beyond in India. But really, pre-Series A, there is not anyone institutionally solving problems for founders, right? Number one. Number two, I think there is also a founder empathy that uh, the VC industry uh, will benefit from, right? Founder empathy of founders who have built companies in the last decade, because a lot of VCs also have people entrepreneurs, ex-entrepreneurs from the previous decades, right? And people who have been operators. But really, very few founders have jumped into the VC world. Uh, many of them are starting up the second company and have become very active angels, but not institutionally too many people have jumped into the VC world. So I believe that is also a very strong uh, sort of an edge there. Third, I would say, if you look at uh, overall India, uh, there is a there is a particular set of per people who are becoming entrepreneurs by default, right? Which is people who are working in some of the unicorns and some of the well-funded companies in the last decade. 
but really there is no one institutionally sort of working on people who have that aspiration and uh, believe me in the last 4 5 years i have addressed so many forums you know talk to people from big corporates and startups and uh, you know in general sessions where people who want to become entrepreneurs come and literally the two questions that people ask one how do i find my co-founder specifically more so my tech co-founder this is the number one question almost by 70 30 right this right, is data right. this is not a uh, you know my guess or hypothesis just data based on the questions that i have been asked over the last 4 5 years and two how do i you know what is it that i need to do to be able to take uh, my product from 0 to 1 right which is uh, really the early platform access the early uh, thinking through of product the early thinking through of how to look at brand of marketing uh, so the early product market fit right at some level so these are two problems that you know for me you know i started talking to antler uh, you know uh, uh, just before the lockdown right and the more i talked right and to be honest i i mean i had really personally never heard of antler before february right so uh, which is uh, you know in all honesty and uh, the more i talked and saw what antler has done globally in just the last one and a half years uh, across sydney across singapore across nairobi you know so many geographies i personally obviously felt a very strong and a deep connect with the way antler has been built and two i also talked to a lot of the companies that antler has built right so it's not just the antler view but the company's view uh, and i coincidentally also had a bunch of friends who have been funded by antler and stuff right so uh, i got a very strong response in that hey this is really of value to me as a founder right because i never went through an antler route i directly raised money from a vc when we did urban ladder So for me, you know, my first understanding was, hey, is this the right time? Two, is that a f- fundamental consumer need? So the other thing I did on LinkedIn was I did a survey with some 110, 120 people uh, who are all founders, right? Uh, and uh, founders who have ha- either bootstrapped or founders who have not yet raised money more than maybe 100k or so, or founders who have not raised any money at all. There was a very, very clear, uh, uh, you know, trend that was coming out there that hey, you know, if you can come build a platform that's going to help me. uh some of them you know who are solo founders who are asking for, from a co-founder angle but more importantly people who are asking for hey if you can build me a platform which literally gives me very specific mentorship uh relevant to me which was you know there's a lot of generic mentorship available specific mentorship meant relevant to me and antler for example globally i know with the 400 and hundreds of advisors literally if i were doing you know a problem on healthcare or on ai or building a drone there is a specific advisor for me for my area which was a which is a huge usp last but not the least capital of course was a big ask right even though there's a lot of capital at this stage between that very angel check and the series a check there is not anyone who's sort of filling in the capital gap which again antler is very strong and last but not the least providing a platform which is not just for india but providing a platform to blow global right because uh, you know if i am an enterprise startup or i am a consumer tech startup then you know can antler take me global I think there's a bunch of things that very serendipitously worked out to be honest in October when I left Urban Ladder I don't think I was even looking at early stage VC but the more I talked to Antler the more I talked to founders VCs and the entire ecosystem the more I very strongly felt that Antler and the problem that Antler is trying to solve is very worthwhile and being solved in the Indian startup ecosystem this coming decade right because I think for me that was the attraction and sort of rewind back to the way we looked at urban ladder right uh, it's a high risk problem but no one institutionally was solving and it's going to take a lot of effort to solve it so i think these were sort of at least personally my attraction points and the indian startup ecosystem given its maturity of the vc ecosystem in the last decade 
and just better quality founders i think this decade will allow for stage specific and sector specific funds to really build big place i mean the love, like the 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 best part of what you just said to me is the 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 focus on like founders and helping them i i think we have multiple values somewhere in antra i always remember only one which is founders first and 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 that's it. Okay, uh, Antler commercial over. Uh, <laughs> so, Rajiv, there's so much you said about the evolution that has taken place in India. Obviously, now there is so much money that is being poured into India, not from just within, but from big international tech companies. My question to you is, you know, it's reached a certain stage and what verticals do you think would be forward-looking now in this post-COVID and recession world? And what sort of vertical should founders think about when creating companies that will benefit the current state of things in India? If I were to sort of just, just take a step back and look at what are the things that are showing a lot of traction, right? Uh, one, in terms of, you know, of course, Antler itself is sector agnostics. So, you know, we are looking for smart entrepreneurs to build great companies across any sector. Uh, but I have an implicit hypothesis in terms of what I think might become important in India for a variety of reasons, okay? One, I think enterprise tech, right? Now, of course, it's a great fit with Antler because Antler itself is into taking companies global and we also have so many startups. We generate literally every uh, you know cohort. Uh, but more importantly, I think there is a bunch of productivity is changing, right? Work is changing. And when work is changing, what happens is people who are solving either micro problems at work uh, and micro problems can be, you know, horizontal, you know, it could be horizontal problems about, Hey, how do we engage with other coworkers? It could be, how do I manage my time better at work? It could be tools around doing, you know, a particular kind of work better, or it could be very vertical oriented. For example, I am a healthcare worker or I am in manufacturing or I am in a financial services or insurance, right? And these are all global workforces, right? So the way global workforces are going to, uh, uh, get uh, the way the global workforces is going to mature over the next 10 years because of uh, accelerated because of COVID, but also just the way things are happening just in the last three, four months has become very different, right? So people who either take a very horizontal view that and go deep into it, which is productivity, uh, time management and things like that, or people who take a vertical view that saying healthcare workers, manufacturing workers, these are the ways that we can solve their problems. I think there's a big space there. And India, if you look at India's evolution in the last 20 years, we have been very service oriented. We have built big services companies like Infosys, Cognizant, uh, you know, uh, TCS and uh, Accenture and stuff, right? But really there's not been outside of a couple of examples in the startup world like Freshworks and Zoho, uh, and a bunch of others, we've not built as many product companies. I mean, the number of unicorns uh, in globally, uh, especially in the US, there's been uh, tons of them, right? So can India sort of turn the tide there to build a bunch of product companies on the enterprise world solving really deep enterprise problems? We have a lot of talent uh, who probably have a bunch of services uh, hypothesis there, but can we pair them up with very smart product talent, people who understand the problem deep and uh, really build a lot of companies. So that's one hypothesis I have in terms of being very relevant for Antler as well as uh, relevant for post-COVID world uh, globally. The second one is, uh, I would say, manufacturing in India. And again, uh, not just because of geopolitical tensions, but also because overall, I think there's just an over-dependence on, uh, let's say, China, right? And is there, and India has always been very strong on its manufacturing ability, both as, but 
not thinking sometimes more beyond being a small medium enterprise right can they keep up with china that's the question see i think with you know thanks to some of the government initiatives over the last 4 5 years specifically uh some of the uh talent moving in right uh into actually working on manufacturing this is very smart talent which believes in the ability to for example apple just very recently set up its first iphone manufacturing in chennai right the headline said in chennai not china um <laughs> uh, and uh, so if an apple given the quality that apple does uh can set it up in india i'm sure something like that will have a huge strong ripple effect and this happened a decade back a couple of decades back in auto manufacturing uh in india right uh, if you have followed that right and Chen- india became a huge auto manufacturing hub so i think at scale we have the ability we have the talent we probably sometimes might lack the ambition maybe sometimes we lack the know-how but are there people who can start small and really be bring in the global expertise and uh build that right and reliance is a great example of going taking strides on the digital world right uh you know getting uh, the likes of a google and a facebook so uh sitting in india of course reliance has power in so many other fronts but can we sort of create startups which in the next decade we sort of start exporting to the world so many different subsectors in the manufacturing and consumer products category right consumer products is sort of a direct offshoot of it and i believe that's a very strong second you know uh space that i think is going to be allowed in india last but not the least the third is i am sort of saying this as larger consumer tech and the reason why i'm calling it consumer tech is see today if you see the fruits of labor of a lot of people a very small subset of people maybe 10% of the world's population ex uh gets the best benefits of you know air travel to a switzerland great insurance a harvard a stanford uh you know uh, uh you know uh, very strong food options meat and very good housing but if you want to get the rest of the 7.5 billion people right let's say out of the population of 7 billion people it's really the developed world uh which is in the us uh some parts of europe and maybe some elite part of india southeast asia china and stuff which is uh getting all of these benefits it is impossible for the environment to handle the same scale of all this to be for the rest of the 7 billion people or the 6 and 1/2 billion people right and there's a very nice article that vinod kosla has written on this right because it is not possible to have uh, 10x more meat it is not possible to have 10x more houses it is not possible to have 10x more stanfords uh it is not possible to run 10x more flights for everyone to go for a vacation on, in switzerland right how do you bring so many different things healthcare education right to uh you know so much population through technology right now technology here might mean very different things can you bring healthcare through telemedicine and hopefully maybe at some point in time ar and vr where someone sitting in some corner of the country can actually get the same uh uh medical care that an apollo or uh, one of the bigger hospitals in india can afford right and that's just a very small micro example i think the sector where it's proving the most today is education right where i can literally get the quality of education maybe of a stanford or harvard through a byju's or an an academy uh, or one of these uh, indian education portals right uh, i think that that's going to happen and even a stanford and harvard will probably uh, maybe disseminate 10x the number of uh, uh, you know certificates maybe at some point in time at the same quality right I think that's going to happen over the next couple of decades because that's the only way the benefits of all of these luxuries can be really uh, experienced by the next 6 and 1/2 billion people and entrepreneurship is really about creating all these in a very smart way. So consumer tech is a very broad area but I would say that's the third 
uh, part again given antler is global we can take some of these startups really global even from uh, uh, day one same on the consumer product side if we do well uh, you know there's a consumer product where let's say i'm doing something skin care which is also applicable for africa or also applicable in southeast asia thanks to the antler global network we can literally take that consumer product back globally right so these are three areas which implicitly and i mean these are very broad but these are three areas which implicitly i think will uh, be the kind of companies that we generated antler and uh, i think there's a lot of action that can happen over the coming decade nice i like the way you said that that this whole spreading to the rest of the population it's almost like entrepreneurship as a service when you build something and you create something you have to think of that aspect i suppose as it goes down so we've actually reached the end uh and it's time for rapid fire first one uh rajiv your biggest influence in life who or what has it been this is a i don't have favorite so i'm going to suck at rapid fire but uh um biggest influence is uh i would say you know uh, at some level it it was the usual suspects of steve jobs plus uh uh you know uh mark zuckerberg plus uh uh bill gates no plus, plus uh, and there's always one? been so, tell us one favorite please <laughs> uh, probably it had to be steve jobs uh but you ask any product manager he or she is going to say steve jobs so i think uh, uh you know that's a very standard answer but i think on the life front it was naval ravikant right and now of course he's very popular on twitter in india also but uh, literally four years back when it was just about becoming popular i happened to sort of hear a bunch of podcasts so the way i look at life i would have to say naval ravikant the way i look at probably work and products i think it would be one of those entrepreneurs okay i thought you were going to say ingvar kamprad like right probably not <laughs> do you have a motto in life like or is it do we go back to the same yeah if we have a motto in life i have motto in life it's uh, i have one life and i'm going to live it i'm going to live it up on every front that i live it up uh whether that's work whether that's personal uh just one life live it up nice your biggest regret do you have one i don't have regrets zero <laughs> that's great not that's a, a great way to live that's have, a great way to live that's the whole point right it's one life so there's no point in uh, you know uh whether it's my own mistake probably the regret uh, uh would be that uh, maybe india didn't beat pakistan in one of those matches but really nothing i could have done about it <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it would be silly to be have a lot of regrets about that, that sort of stuff, you know. Uh, what's the kindest thing someone has done to you? Oh wow. That's a tricky one. See, I've been so fortunate that it's it's both uh in a good way and in a bad way I can't pick one because I think I've been super fortunate, right? Whether it's my team, whether it's my co-founder Ashish, whether it's my family whether it's my friends there have been too many things to sort of name in you know one which is why i said you know i'm a very jack of all trades so i suck at these uh, pick one kind of answers uh, because there are so many and uh, i you know very difficult maybe uh, if i were to pick a recent memory uh, i don't know i have to probably thank the swiggy person who delivered my lunch today you know amidst all the covid gloom right literally that's the most recent act literally every act like that for me is uh, something of gratitude so uh, so that's the most recent one an hour back we are very grateful for all the little things in your life yeah that's and the only people, way to live that's a great way to live 
I did want to ask you about your recent TED talk, since we're talking about living and it has to do with managing time. If you want to just end by summarizing, you know, what you spoke about uh, and it was about time management and what the essence of the talk was, what is Rajiv's formula to time management? I love this puja because just three minutes before my next meeting, you're uh, talking about time management. So, uh, you know, this is uh, fantastic because see my simple philosophy, you have one life. So you divide the life into multiple chapters. You can't plan too far ahead, right? Because if anyone told me last year that they planned for COVID, uh, that's a whole load of nonsense again. So now COVID has told every one of us that we can't plan too far ahead. You can't change the past. So now if that is the given context, then you have at any point in time, the current chapter of life could be three to five years, let's say. And at max, maybe you stretch it to a decade, right? You have a broad outline and a plan for it, right? Now, if you, what you have to do is to sort of, once you have those very high level goals and direction you want to go in, that's a broad direction. You divide that into, uh, you know, four uh, smaller chunks of time. Now, what are those four smaller chunks of time? First is a quarter because everyone in this world operates on a quarter. So that's 90 days. That's almost 13 weeks, right? Uh, then the next chunk is weeks, right? Which is one week. Okay. Uh, and if you look at one week, you obviously have seven days, which is let's say five, five and a half working days. And every day has maybe 16, 17 active hours. So I take the week as sort of a strong construct around which you anchor everything. You plan for the next week, you schedule for the next week, you do everything for a week and maybe at most for a quarter, because maybe some you know, if you were traveling before COVID, you needed a visa. So you need to get a visa maybe one quarter before, right? Or you have to book your ticket a quarter before. If you are, let's say, meeting some big person who's super busy, you need to plan maybe a month ahead, right? Those are the only occasions where you plan a month ahead other than, of course, your quarterly goals. So now if you have a quarterly goal and a weekly uh, schedule to plan a week, if you reduce the sleeping hours of, let's say, 42 hours, let's say six hours a day you sleep, you know, I'm just reducing that seven hours a day. 48 hours is gone. You are left with 120 hours, right? 120 hours allows you literally, if you remove, let's say, some basic physical meditation, journaling, you know, spending time on yourself, you have to do two, three hours a day, you are left with 100 hours. So my tech talk was, uh, you know, just breaking down time into these 100 hour chunks and saying, hey, you have 100 hours in your week, which you have to spend between work, your family, friends, and maybe some, so, you know, social interests or let's say, you know, your hobbies and stuff. Now, obviously, different of us have chosen different career paths. If you're starting up, maybe 80 hours is going to go into just your startup. And you have 20 hours, maybe on one more of this, right? Maybe if you're in a very high pressure job, like what some of us are, maybe we're going to spend at least 60 to 80 hours every week on helping founders or whatever else. So we have maybe uh, another 10 hours extra at max, right? If you're in a big corporate job where, you know, you have a lot of things going, maybe you're 40 to 60 hours. So I think based on what you are doing at different points in time, we also need to stretch and we also need to sort of take bigger shots at some aspects of life. We have a product launch. We're going to spend 100 hours, all of us also, right? Just make sure that you're cognizant of that week, what is going to happen. Communicate to all the people involved so that there is no friction because if your spouse is expecting you to spend some time and you have a product launch, it's not going to go down well, right? So plan, communicate, slot every slot possible uh, on your calendar, including your own personal time and just live that slot in that moment, right? Forget about everything else. If I'm with you here right now, I'm only thinking of you and this call and not the next meeting, right? So I would say just if you can live that hour to hour through the 100 hours, assess your week, plan the next 100 hours, you will live a great life. 
super advice. So goals divided by chunks of time, immense focus and focus an hour at a time every week. So that was a great hour. <laughs> so I'm glad I'm no longer an investment banker. I remember the 110-hour week, so somehow breaks the formula completely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it does break the formula. And uh, pretty much either... Uh, see, the thing is, there's also... An, uh, you know, it's uh, become too fashionable to be busy. Uh, yeah. And I think investment bankers and consultants have uh, did their done their role to make that fashionable. Yeah. Uh, but I think that's a whole lot of nonsense. What? I think as long as you, you know, focus on spending, uh, you know, and consciously do it, right? Whatever it is, 80 hours, 70 hours, don't keep getting distracted into social media during those 70 hours of work. And vice versa, when you're spending an hour with a kid, don't get distracted into something else. So mm-hmm. I think we all tend to, uh, you know, fashionably uh, prioritize being busy sort of outcomes. Mm-hmm. That's why I would say measure outcomes at a week on every front of life. And as long as you're moving on that, uh, care to hoots about what anyone else thinks. Awesome. On that note, we let you go for your next meeting so that you're on time. And thank you so much for joining us today. Sure. Thanks for having me. You have been listening to the Antler VC cast with UC Salavera and me, Pooja Parwani. To know more about Antler, our portfolio companies and our philosophy, visit us at www.antler.co or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook at Antler Global. Thank you for listening.